Well, good evening, everyone, and thanks for joining us tonight. If you're tuning in tonight, it's because you want to, not because you have to, and we're thrilled to have you with us. If you remember, our Christmas series was called From Majesty to Manger, and behind me tonight, you can see the throne. Uh, we brought it back because it will fill in tonight for some of the things that we're going to be talking about. It signifies majesty, signifies royalty, of the one that we'll be talking about tonight. And what I want to suggest tonight is that tonight is about honor. Tonight is a night to remember. We, as Christians, are never to forget what God did for us on this day. If you don't know Jesus, it's intended as an object lesson that you will never forget. We're never to forget how Jesus willingly went to the cross and took the hit for our sins. That he cared that much for us. And we're to never forget the cost, the frightful, terrible cost of what it took to cover our rebellion and our iniquity, our sin, if you will. The story is meant to shock. Uh, it's intended to grab your attention, to personally affect you, to let the reality of it impact you so you can't just sit there. You have to do something with it. And it's designed by God to elicit a response from you. Right now, with the circumstances that we find ourselves in with the whole COVID-19 outbreak, it's a good time. Actually, I think it's a great time to, get, to go back over what God says the problem is and what he did to provide a way out over the death trap that our sin has created. Mark recorded Peter's recounting of the story, and he wrote it down so that we would know. Both what the cost was, but also that there was a real Savior, one who could provide a way out of hell, and one who could and would forgive our sin. One who willingly stood in our place. In modern terminology, it's God's ultimate podcast. And we're going to look at that message tonight. Will you join me in prayer and we'll walk through the night together. Father, we come tonight in memory, in um, observance of Good Friday. Not good because of what happened, but good by what you brought out of it. Father, the incredible story of sin and its trail through human history and that at, from the beginning you began to plan and do something about it but the sh terrible shocking cost has affected all of us and as we look tonight we want it to grip us we pray lord we're here and we're asking as we're gathered again scattered throughout our community and our homes that you would communicate through your spirit in a way that's so living and so tangible that people would be affected by it, that people would hear you speaking to them. And so we seek you for tonight as we go through these uh, songs and we worship together, as we, as we go through the readings, as we go through the things that we'll lay out, Lord, that we will go on a journey together and find ourselves captivated by the story again as if it were happening right now tonight. We lift this up to you with great hope and, and, and ask for this in your son's name. Amen.
Thank you, Steve, and good evening, everybody. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us for this special Good Friday edition. We invite you at home to sing along with these next couple songs as we simply meditate and celebrate the beautiful sacrifice of love given to us by our Savior Jesus. So please sing along with us as we just pay homage to what he did for us. Men of sorrows, Lamb of God, by his own betrayed. Free. 
And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. My earliest memories are of hearing my father tell us about the coming Messiah. We would gather each night before our bedtime Shema to hear stories from the Torah. Inevitably, these nightly talks often found us discussing the hope of Israel. Our deepest desire was to see the one who would come to save us from the oppressive Roman rule and establish Israel's leadership in the coming kingdom of God. Many a man in Israel has risen up to try and fulfill our hopes for freedom. And yet we still await the Messiah. The first time I heard of Yeshua, I knew there was something special about him. The words he spoke came from a deep well of authority that few others possessed, and the deeds he performed held us in reverent awe. Could this be the one we've been waiting for and hoping for so long? The Passover that Yeshua came was one of the most memorable weeks in my life. I was sitting in the shadows of the walls of Jerusalem looking across the valley when I first saw the crowds forming alongside the road. Naturally, my curiosity drew me down to see whose arrival could be attracting such a commotion. As I came close, I could hear people singing and praising God, and then I saw him seated on a colt. Suddenly, all the nights of my youth came flashing back, and our visions of a Messiah riding into Jerusalem clicked into place. This was him. This was the time I was going to see Israel set free. The next few days were confusing, jumble of emotions and strange events. Yeshua went to the temple and caused quite a scene chasing out the sellers, and there were many heated conversations with the priests, scribes, and elders. Why was he attacking his own people? It was the Romans who needed to be run out of our country. My curiosity drove me to stay close and see what would come of all of this. And a couple of nights later, the high priest guards took him on the grounds of blasphemy. After hours of questions and testimonies, the high priest finally asked if he was the Messiah and the Son of God. He answered yes, and my heart broke as I realized that my leaders were right He was nothing more than delusional. Once again, my hopes of seeing the Messiah came crashing down around me. Oh, blessed God, when will you save us? And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him.
and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of the Israel, come down now from his cross, that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. My name is Benjamin, and I proudly bear the name of my fathers, the youngest son of Jacob. And I'm proud to be a Pharisee, and I keep the 613 laws of the Mishnah, and I have since the days of my youth. And I worship the one true God. His name is too sacred to even say because it would be blasphemy, so I call him Hashem. It's the name that's above all names. And as much as my brothers and I honor Hashem, not all from my nation do. This man, Yeshua, calls himself a rabbi. And it's arrogant. What arrogance? Even his name is arrogant because you Gentiles don't see it. He calls himself Yeshua, and that means he is calling himself salvation. Unbelievable arrogance. What chutzpah. Isaiah was clear. Hashem is not a man. And by calling himself the son of Hashem, this imposter makes himself equal to Hashem. Yeshua is guilty of blasphemy. He should be stoned. But alas, we don't have the power. The scepters departed from Judah. We didn't have the authority to do what was necessary. And Shiloh has still not come. How can this be? Hashem, send us quickly your true Messiah. Brothers, these are dangerous times. And once we knew Yeshua was not Messiah, we had no choice. We, we knew he wasn't going to fulfill our hopes and our dreams of being the true Messiah that truly fulfilled the prophecies. Once we realized that and we knew he wasn't Messiah ben David, we had no choice and he wasn't going to bring our nation to its rightful place of dominance and instead was going to ruin us, we knew we had to act. And it was clear he was an imposter. Can't you see it? This man was spreading his deception like a cancer and he threatened our very existence as he deceived the unlearned and the common people. I cannot believe what the Romans did. It was horrible. And although he deserved to be punished, it was so severe. But it revealed the severity of the judgment on him. He had this coming, and Hashem punished him. We had to deliver him to the hands of the sinners. And don't you see how his death is further proof he's not who he claimed to be? Cursed is every man who claims on the tree. And as Messiah, he could have come from the cross. And he could have put the Romans in their place and brought about the kingdom of Hashem and put us in control of the entire world, fulfilling every prophecy. 
The scriptures are clear. Hashem is not a man. There is no one like him. And this man was a leprous spot on our nation, on our race and our nation. And his death only proves he is a false prophet. Can't you see it? Can't you see that our leaders did what was necessary and they did the work of Hashem? We worked deftly through the Romans to do what was needed to preserve our nation, our people, and the promises of Abraham. And I am proud of what we did. May Hashem preserve our nation. May Hashem preserve our people. And Messiah ben David come. We seek that you and our affliction that you would come. We seek you earnestly. Come, Messiah ben David. Work as you did with our fathers in Egypt. May you establish your kingdom in Israel. Come, take back your land from the Romans. Hashem, with your true salvation and deliver us from the many deceivers who with swelling words take the hearts of the people far away from you. Messiah ben David. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. I never imagined this could happen. How could this be happening? There he is. Yeshua is dead. But how can that be? He changed my life. He changed many lives. But now he's dead? He can't really be dead. Not like this. No. No, no. This simply can't be happening. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. He was stronger than any of these men who nailed him up there. Stronger than any of the men who sentenced him to die like, like the lowest of criminals. Don't they even know who this man was? He, he cared for the weak. He cared for the broken and the blind. And he even cared for the crippled. Not only that, but he healed them. I know it. I saw him do it time and time again. And, well, I know what I experienced. Even though it defies description. The fact is, he healed me too. He healed me. 
Sure, the rumors I'd heard floating around about him seemed too good to be true, but from the first moment I heard him teaching, power and authority and, and most of all love just radiated from him. When he saw me in the synagogue that Sabbath day, he, he saw me hiding behind those who were way more important and respectable than me, and he, he actually called me to come to him. Imagine that. He called a lowly and broken woman like me to come to him. I went right to him, of course, even though it took me so long to shuffle forward, even though I was all bent over and twisted up, too much to even lift, lift my eyes and look him in the face. But he waited patiently for me while I could only look down at his feet. And he laid his hands on me. And I remember 18 long years of suffering just ended. Those hands clearly held so much power. And yet, he was so gentle and kind with me. How can those same hands now be torn by those cruel spikes that hold him up there? He can't really be dead, can he? From the moment that he touched me, I could straighten and stand up again. He spoke freedom over me, and I was set free in an instant from the years of evil and crippling torment that I endured. But the physical healing was nothing compared to the healing I felt in my heart and my soul. I felt the oppressive darkness lifting and the light of love and forgiveness pouring into every aching and bitter and sin-scarred place inside of me. Hallelujah! Freedom! So, so why didn't he free himself today on this day? Of course I followed him after that day he healed me. And I gladly joined the other women who were going with him. We all gave whatever we could to minister to him. He was traveling and teaching in ways that none of us had ever heard. We all knew he must be the Messiah. He was like no leader I've ever known. He was tender and humble, but surely power like that, power that heals and restores body and soul, that could only come from God could only belong to God. He spoke to women and healed lepers, blessed little children. He even called people back from the grave. I heard him say that he was the son of God, and I believed it then, and somehow I still believe it now. Who else could do the wonders we have seen? And who else could forgive sins, even my sins? And who else would have had the will to stand up to the leaders in the, in the synagogues and in the temples? But then when they came for him, he didn't stand up to them. He didn't put up any fight at all. In fact, he hardly said a word. When they accused him of horrible blasphemy, they didn't even have their story straight, but he was silent. They were obviously jealous. They were even afraid of him just a couple days ago. They lost every argument, every silly trap they laid for him didn't even bother him. So, so how could this be happening? 
How could they condemn him to die? How could they humiliate him like this when he did nothing wrong? And why, why, why didn't he stop this? I felt his power, and I know I'm not the only one. So how could he be there, hanging naked and powerless, and bruised and battered and, and dead? He can't really be dead, can he? This man, the son of God, who gave me life, why? Why, why is he dead? And where, where does that leave us? What, what happens now? And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. As we reflect on what we've just walked through, the words of Isaiah the prophet ring out not as to just what happened, but also the purpose of why it happened. Isaiah says this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied, and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, and yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. The mind-boggling fact that has to be wrestled with, what Isaiah is trying to tell us is that the Lord's will, read here, the Father's will, was to crush him. That his life would be poured out to death. That he, Jesus, would become a sin offering. Now what's missing from this description is what we would call the special effects, the sound of the whip, the stench of blood, the sound of the nails, the thud of the cross being dropped into a hole, the sound of the mockers and the revilers, the breaking of the legs of the men on either side of him, 
the sound of the spear puncturing the body, the sun going dark, the temple veil being torn in two, the earthquake, the wails and the sobs of the onlookers, and the declaration by the centurion, surely this was the Son of God. This is what is called a substitutionary death. We are in a courtroom, in a courtroom of heaven, if you want to think of it that way, before an all-holy God. And we are found guilty. The verdict is rendered. The punishment is death. But Jesus takes off the judge's clothes and he stands in our place. And the verdict is then transferred and laid on him. And we are freed by his actions because of that. Hebrews has some eloquent ways of saying this. In chapter 9, it says, For if the blood of goats and bulls, the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, it's talking about here the whole Old, Tas- Old Testament sacrificial system, the whole system that showed them the price tag for sin and the cost of sin. And the writer of Hebrews is talking about that and says when you stack that up and look at that and you think about what that was and how involved that was, how much more will the blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And it says because of that then, Jesus becomes a mediator. It says therefore he is a mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. In other words, we had no way out. We had nowhere to go. We had no way to pay. And what Hebrews is saying here is that by what Jesus has done in the new covenant, his death on the cross we have received a promise of eternal inheritance if we've asked Christ into our life. And that the transgressions that were committed now have been redeemed. They've been washed. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west. This death has occurred. What it does, it sets up for us a different system because now Jesus is what's called a mediator. What's a mediator? A mediator is a person who attempts to make people involved in a conflict come to an agreement. And here it's talking about the conflict with an all-holy God, and we are in conflict with him because of our sin. So terms are being negotiated. Jesus goes to the Father, and mediating says, what would be an agreeable settlement? And the Father responds, your life and the shedding of of your blood for their sake. Hebrews 9 goes on to say this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The old hymn says it well, What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Though that's true, the picture is not a pretty one. Everything is shattered. Jesus is grossly dead, mangled almost beyond recognition. Joseph takes the body and buries it. 
a great large stone is rolled across the entrance of the tomb. And all the dreams and all the hopes that Jesus had inspired are buried with it. The two Marys stare in stunned silence. How could it have come to this? Until it really registers, it doesn't and won't make sense of God reaching out to us this way. It totally looks like he lost. And it totally looks like we lost as well. Please join us on Easter Sunday as we will come back and look at the other side of the coin, the other side of this picture that Scripture tells us about and why Christians celebrate this terrible event and it's come to be known as Good Friday and we will take a look at that for Easter Sunday. We're going to ask Esther and the team to come back up and close us out and point us in that direction.
forever.